we need to realize that there are multiple Japans and you kind of can choose where you're working at. You can kind of choose which part of Japan do you want to associate with and, when, and which one you want to work with. I'm not going to deny that there's a karoshi issue. It's just more like, you know, you don't necessarily have to get into that side of Japan when you're looking for a job in Japan. There are more choices than the monolithic Japan that people think about. Hello everyone and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Buchelman. This podcast is for individuals who want to develop and strengthen the communication skills and mindsets that are essential for a Japanese business environment. The helpful, practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in-depth cultural context needed to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. In today's episode, I'm sharing a conversation with Austin Zhang, a native of Singapore who first came to Japan on the MEXT scholarship and is now actively involved in the startup space there. He's a developer, translator and interpreter, blogger, and even participates in a Japanese think tank. Austin shares much more about his activities during the interview, so be sure to stick around to learn more about all of the things he's up to in Japan. But before we get into the episode, let's go over some Japanese. In the previous episode, we learned the word shumi. 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 The most common translation of shumi into English is probably the word hobby. To hear about its significance in Japanese culture and, by extension, its importance in doing business in Japan, be sure to listen to the previous episode with Kevin Kroll. In this episode, I want to highlight a word that comes up when Austin discusses visas. It's actually a combination of two words, but I will break them down for you in just a moment. Tokteigino. Tokteigino. Tokte means specific, special, or designated, which is probably the best translation for this context. Gino means ability or special skill, so the visa this refers to, the Tokte Gino visa, is a visa intended for people who want to come to Japan who have specific in demand skills or who want to work in certain industries. The point of this visa is to help address the labor shortage that has been coming alongside the rapid shrinking of the working age population in Japan. Austin touches on some of this later on in the conversation, so be sure to keep listening to learn more. But before we get into the conversation, I wanted to take a moment to offer a very special thank you to Hassan, who made the very first donation on the podcast's new coffee page. Hassan wrote, Just finished listening to your entire series. I really appreciate the time and effort you've put into the podcasts. I learned a lot about doing business in Japan, and it was fun. Thank you so much, Hassan. If you would also like to support the podcast and want to help keep the content flowing, please consider doing one of three things. If you haven't already, please go ahead and follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're using, and consider leaving a review if you're on Apple Podcasts to help the podcast reach new listeners who could benefit from the information shared here. If you have a favorite episode, please go ahead and share it with a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy it. And if you would like to help make sure I stay well caffeinated enough to keep putting together these podcasts, you can also provide financial support at the podcast's new coffee page. You can donate once or even monthly, and every little bit goes a long way. You can find the link to do so in the description of the episode. Thanks so much in advance, and let's get into today's conversation. So, would you mind just taking a second to quickly tell us a little bit about who you are? Okay, so、uh, in short, I'm Singaporean,、uh, came to Japan. 
almost 10 years ago, actually, in 2012, first came as a student, stayed on to work uh, in Tokyo after that. Um, so regarding like uh, what I do, right? So I mainly work in IT, so I am an engineer, um, mainly doing freelance work in, uh, in Japan. So uh, I also wear many hats. So the thing is, aside from just being an engineer, I also do translation and interpretation work sometimes. Part of what I do is also centered around the theme of foreigners in Japan. So you're looking at like research uh, surveys about uh, how about like uh, the issues the foreigners face when they're looking for jobs in Japan. I do this under a Japanese government think tank. I also run the uh, Mech Scholars Association, which is a uh, the association for recipients and graduates of the Mech government scholarship provided by the Japanese uh, education ministry. Yeah, so it sounds like you're more than a little bit busy. <laughs> so could you tell us a little bit about what it's like to work as a freelancer in Japan? I mean... Uh, to be honest, like freelancing in Japan in tech right now isn't exactly very, um, it's not hard to find work because uh, like everywhere in the world, like uh, there is a shortage of technical talents here. So I, well, people, people look for, for, for someone to uh, fix their website and I go in and I fix the website and I get money for it. Uh, very simple. Yeah. Um, but one thing, one thing to note, that I think that may be interesting for your, uh, for your audience is that unlike many other countries, visa regimes, the Japanese work visa, the most common work visa that people are on in Japan, does not actually care whether you are in Japan, in Japan as a full-timer, as a part-timer, or as, as a contract employee. There, there's a whole long story behind it, but so actually uh, in Japan, you actually can get like a work visa as a freelancer. Um, and for me, I do belong to one company, which is my main work. But the thing is that my visa does not restrict me to only have income from that company, which is why, like, you know, I do multiple things at the same time. Right. I know that sometimes the contract that you get from your company tries to maintain some mm. amount of exclusivity, but your actual visa, depending mm. on the type of visa, we can get into that later, too, if we have time. But that is much less restrictive in terms of what you're actually able to do for work, which is nice. So going back to what you were saying before about working with foreign students or dealing with issues surrounding foreign students in Japan, is there anything that you can tell us about that experience for students? So regarding the theme of foreign students in Japan, right? I guess I can talk about a few things. So. Um, I was the vice president of the Singaporean Student Association in Japan, like, but that's just, a, that's not that big as an organization, to be honest, uh, but that was when I was a student. Right now, there are, I guess, are two fronts that I, I, I work on uh, regarding foreign students and foreigners in Japan as a whole. One is from an academic point of view. That is the academic research that I've been doing. Like, you know, this is published on like uh, the uh, Japanese, the think tank's website. So the thing is I look, I, I do research, like, you know, surveys of like asking people, what are the difficulties that they face in Japan, like getting a job in Japan? What are the, uh, the benefits? What are the motivations for actually coming to Japan to work in, in the first place? If they are a student, how strongly do they prefer working in Japan rather than like, you know, going home and things like that? Like, you know, are they thinking of a third country or, and, uh, to, and, and things like that. So that's from an academic perspective, right? So more of like the big picture, looking at like, uh, what's, what are the, what does the, what does the quantitative data tell us basically? That's what, that's one thing. The second thing that I do is more on the ground though. And that's where I am actually leading like the Mech Scholars Association especially for projects regarding career development. So this is where I am like, you know, 
giving lectures, sometimes university students, sometimes with scholarship like groups and stuff like that about how people can plan for their careers in Japan. What are the common pitfalls that people face when they are trying to look for a job in, uh, in Japan? Uh, what are the shortcuts sometimes like in, regarding like uh, how to find a job in Japan? Uh, so that's more like, you know, on the ground and yeah, that, that's that's basically the two like angles that I, I approach things like, you know, approach this theme about foreigners in Japan from. You mentioned that the that you're working at a Japanese government think tank, yes. but the research you do, what are some of the issues that have been raised and are there any things that the Japanese government is currently doing or planning to make policy about in order to address some of those issues? Okay. Uh, ooh, like a political question. So I need to watch, <laughs> watch how I answer, but no, no, no. no. I think that this is this is pretty much like public information and it's all well known. Anyway, just to, just to clarify, I am a project member of a research group in the think tank. The think tank is, of course, it produces policy papers, it produces suggestions, it produces surveys and research papers. How much all this really goes into policy formation, that's a whole other topic. So yeah, uh, but let's talk about how the Japanese government is actually approaching the issue of foreigners working in Japan. So um, for the background, we all know that Japan is, is pretty much the first developed country that it's going to that is facing a population crunch. So the population of Japan decreases by 350,000 around there, like in you know, every year. And not to, not just the absolute decreases, but of course the proportion of working adults versus like you know like the dependent ages is definitely like you know decreasing, which means that Japan needs labor. Now, uh, Japan as a whole, however, has been in the past 10 years has been looking at like you know trying to activate new sectors of labor. So you're looking at like uh, increasing the female employment rate. They were looking at like, of course, increasing the, the, the foreign, like, you know, like the number of foreign uh, foreigners working in Japan. And on that uh, point of regarding the foreigners in Japan, we have a few examples of uh, Japanese government policies, new visa classes that have been implemented in the past 10 years to try to increase the number of this. The highly skilled visa is one of these examples. Another example is reforming and de facto trying to replace the internship system with a different visa class. I, actually, it's not de facto replacing that, like the opening of a new visa class uh, for, uh, which is the Tokte Gino. I'm not sure what the English translation of that is, but yes, anyway, new visa classes for, from a legal perspective. From the foreign student point of view, uh, in the past 10 years, the Japanese government has been increasing, like has been trying to push universities to increase English courses in, uh, in universities. The issue, however, is that many of these don't really have enough career support for the entrance, and therefore many of uh, the people who enter these courses don't really get into, like, uh, don't really find jobs in Japan, even if they want to. So increasingly, there is a more knowledge and a like a recognition from the Japanese government that instead of just bringing foreigners into Japan, foreign students into Japan, you kind of need to provide them with the tools for them to transition into the workforce, and the Japanese education ministry has, I think, like, you know, a project group regarding this, like they're trying to increase, like, you know, like uh, career counseling for foreigners. The welfare ministry through Hello Work actually has done, trying to, is trying to do something along the same lines. The economy ministry, METI, uh, is also trying to do something similar. They're not really coordinated, to be, to be very honest, but like, uh, yeah, there, there are attempts from various uh, agencies to try to increase the number of foreigners working in Japan. As for the efficacy of it, uh, <laughs> a bit, it's a bit of a no comment for me, but the thing is that they try, they try. 
uh, if you want me to give, be honest about what they're doing, though, I, I do think that one big issue that they're facing is that they're trying to do without these initiatives, without actually listening to the ground, as in listening to foreigners. And that's kind of a very big policy roadblock that happens for very, very uh, often regarding like uh, foreigners. So, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I do hope they try to like fix that thing because you can't fix the issues of actually talking to people facing the issues, right? Right, definitely. Nobody knows the issues better than the people who are dealing with them head on. Exactly. Yeah, so going back to what you were saying before about how obviously Japanese universities are being pretty aggressive about attracting foreign students, but then the pitfalls come later when they try to find work. What Mm -hmm. do those pitfalls tend to be for foreign students in Japan? The pitfalls for foreign students, there are a few key ones. Number one, being late for job hunting is the number one uh, culprit of like people self-sabotaging the job hunting, I think. Uh, so there is really evidence. So research from Minabi and like other HR, big, big HR companies in Japan do indicate that foreign students tend to have their first recruitment actions, like, you know, like sending in the CV, for example, around two or three months later than, than typical Japanese students. So the thing is that that's one thing. And this is because of a lack of understanding of how the Japanese working recruitment cycle works, which is very different from the how it works in the rest of the world. So the thing is that in Japan, like, you know, the recruitment cycle start can start as early as 18 months before your graduation, for example. And that's if you're looking for like, you know, particularly like big international companies, but yes, this, uh, this kind of thing happens. So and many international students will come into Japan and they study, nobody tells them this. And so they end up studying until the last semester and they're like, oh, now I need to find a job because my graduation is six months away. But by that time, this round, this six months away comes about like, you know, like 80% of like companies already finished like fresh, fresh graduate hiring is one thing. So. Uh, not understanding the uh, recruitment cycle is one big thing. Another thing is language. Now, clearly, this is a bit of a difficult topic because many students study in English nowadays. But nonetheless, the rough idea that Japanese companies want is a foreigner with at least a JLPT N2. That is the average. And uh, because of this, there may be a skill mismatch. I can't blame either party for this, though. Because on the other hand, on one hand, can you really blame the Japanese company for wanting somebody who speaks Japanese when the, when the majority of their workforce is going to be Japanese people who don't necessarily speak very good English? But on the other hand, there is ample criticism, which I also agree with that. Do you really need somebody with an N2 when, for example, you're going to try to place the person in, like, you know, for example, an overseas sales job? Or can the person not learn on the fly? For example, because N- the, the N2 and the N1 are rather artificial measures of Japanese, which are more towards academic Japanese and business Japanese anyway. So yeah, th- there's these criticisms. Uh, time, I guess the schedule, then after that, there's the, the skill mismatch um, is another thing. Also, th- th- there's a deeper point though. There, we have lots of students in Japan who speak like, you know, near native, uh, near native Japanese. They also have lots of trouble trying to find a job. And for me, it's because they have gotten too deep into the, the Japanese game. Let's put it this way. So when you, uh, th- there's a very strange situation where the more Japanese you learn, the more you talk to your Japanese friends, they say, oh, you need to go for this, that's a job fair. They need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this. 
But the, they tried to do the same thing. And even with the exact same qualifications, the exact same universities, right, their success rate is much lower than the Japanese person. Now, why is this so? Um, to be honest, there is a bit of a discrimination, like, you know, like a background towards that in the sense of Japanese uh, first may look at a resume and say, oh my God, it's a foreigner. And it's, this person may not speak pop, like, you know, uh, perfect Japanese. This person is more likely to quit in the first three years. There's a lot story, there's a long story about that as well. And, and things like that. So there is a, that factor, but for me, I'm like, you know, you, you kind of need to choose companies when you're applying to based on your strengths as a foreigner in Japan as well. So many, many people may end up like, you know, looking for jobs in all the companies that the Japanese students also look for. But if the company doesn't have an international element, foreign student, being a foreign student is a minus. If the company, however, is, has an international element, looking specifically for these companies and then applying and making very clear that you are a effective bilingual can actually be a plus and increase your chances above what a typical Japanese graduate will be. So then this sense, in this sense, kind of linked to the mismatch of skill, skills uh, just that I mentioned just now, I think many foreign students don't really, haven't really articulated their own value in the job market. And therefore they aren't necessarily making the correct choices or, the, or places to apply when they're actually looking for a job. Uh, and this leads to lots of lost time and lots of frustration. Nobody likes shukatsu. Everybody hates shukatsu, so yes. Everybody hates shukatsu, but shukatsu is the key, definitely. I mean, like this also. I, I mean, like the funny thing is, I didn't. I never did a single day of shukatsu. It's, it's funny because I talk so much about it and I know a lot about it, but I myself have not done it before. But that's because I got my first job through connections and then a, and then long term internship. So there are actually like you know like back doors and like you know back doors, side doors, and not many people know about these. Uh, which is why I try to talk about them, like, you know, when I'm giving lectures and uh, I should mention that I have a blog where I write about, like, you know, uh, about Japan, about how to job hunt and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, people who want to hear more, read more about what I think can look at my blog. Yeah. Right. Definitely check out the links in the description of the episode mm -hmm. to learn more about these topics, because unfortunately, we don't have time to talk about everything, <laughs> which we did, we but not today. So that is a common trend that comes up on the podcast where if you try to compete directly with Japanese people in the game that is designed for Japanese people, you will just lose because you're not Japanese. And even on a logistic level, not even going into any amount of discrimination, are you going to take the person who is a Japanese citizen or the person you have to file extra paperwork for their, their visa? Like, there are just certain things where if you try to compete <laughs> with a Japanese person, you will lose out. So definitely choose those battles where you have an edge or where you stand out in a positive way rather than a negative way, definitely. So then moving on a little bit, I would just love to hear a little bit more about the MEXT scholarship specifically, both on a personal level and because it can be a little bit hard to get clear information about it online because so many things kind of have similar names and they don't always make the most sense how they're different. So would you mind explaining that a little bit for us? Okay, so the MEXT scholarship, uh, MEXT being the Ministry of Education uh, scholarship is a scholarship that is awarded to foreign students coming into Japan every year. Uh, the numbers that I am aware of is uh, are that like for 
well, COVID has thrown a spanner into things, but like in normal years, you're looking at uh, around 3,000 people or more entering Japan under this scholarship. This includes multiple kinds of courses. The biggest bulk of the, these scholarship recipients are graduate students. So you're looking at masters and above students. There is an undergraduate course. I graduated from the undergraduate course. Uh, there is a specialist schools course. There is also a college of technology courses. So I think there are five or six different routes, but yeah. In short, that, that really is the scholarship. This is a scholarship that waives your tuition fees. It also gives you a monthly stipend to live on, uh, which usually is enough. And there is no obligation to stay in Japan, like after the scholarship, after you finish the scholarship. So actually it's quite, a, it's a very attractive scholarship based on its terms. Freedom and like, you know, the it's, it's kind of like, you know, like full board as well. Of course, not, not necessarily depending on your circumstances, but yeah, I, I definitely am very thankful that, you know, I came on Japanese taxpayer money. So I'm, I'm paying taxes right now. So I'm trying to give back. Yeah. Are there any common misconceptions that you hear from people about the MEXT scholarship? Anything you might want to call out while people are thinking about it? I think that firstly, not enough people know about the MEXT scholarship. So that's the first thing people, and uh, part of that is because Japan doesn't really know how to publicize itself very well in multiple aspects, including this. Uh, the second thing is that common misconceptions I can't really think of like, you know, common misconceptions because there's, not, there's so few, there's so little information online that, as you mentioned just now, that I, there's not much debate to get mis common misconceptions about like off it. Like, you know, it's like everybody's just a bit confused when you're just, when you're applying for it. But yeah, I mean, do, do you have any, like any like uh, things that you want to like, you know, check with me regarding this scholarship? No, it's just interesting because everybody I talk to seems to think about it differently. I did a little bit more heavy duty research into it because I was thinking about applying to it. But some people think for some reason that the graduate version has been canceled and now there's only the undergraduate version. Like there just seems to be a lot of misinformation about the scholarship mm. itself. Um, there's lots of mis. Yeah, uh, actually, because I myself don't necessarily fully understand a scholarship because it does change from year to year, like, you know. So what those people may be referring to is whether uh, some courses may be eligible for a MEX scholarship grants to some students. Depending on the year, sometimes these, uh, the possibility of like these course, like, you know, uh, these course recipients or like these the people enrolled in these courses uh, receiving the MEC scholarship may be reduced or may be removed, that, that eligibility may be removed. That much is true. However, the, uh, the, the overall point about the MEC scholarship, the whole graduate scholarship being removed is definitely false. Okay. It's definitely yep. false. We, still, we have people who actually entered this year as well, like, you know, like, uh, and selection is still going on by uh, embassies throughout the world at this point of time. Mm -hmm. Definitely good to know. Yeah. So yes, go check out the resources in the description of the episode to learn more directly from somebody who actually knows what's going on. <laughs> because I don't know about the Mex scholarship on my blog though, but um, uh, maybe maybe you want to like okay, I guess there's going to be a link to the association, mm -hmm. I guess, assuming as well. So maybe from there you can get like more information. But just one very important thing to note: if you are thinking of getting like trying to apply for the Mex scholarship, the easiest way to, for you to get authoritative information contact your country's Japanese embassy because they are the people who are aware whether when the applications are open how to apply what documents are needed and things like that please contact them they are they are the, the people who can answer your questions the best mm -hmm, definitely though 
from what I learned in my own research, it is possible to apply to the mixed scholarship directly from the university that you want to attend, correct? Um, yes, but you don't, you're not exactly the person who applies for the scholarship. You apply for enrollment into the university in a certain course. The university has the uh, capability of recommending certain of uh, a certain number of their accepted candidates for the MEX scholarship. MEX then, like, but this is automatic. Uh, so the thing is, it's not even your application. And so if you get the scholarship based on those terms, then you get the scholarship, but it's not something that you yourself apply for. And there is a website that I was using during my own research into the scholarship. I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but check out the links in the description. I'll be sure to include it down there for people who are interested. So what is it like for foreign students who want to work while they're studying in Japan? What is it like? Uh, like it's quite a big question. So let me try to chop it down. There's a few things, there's a few ways to approach a question. Number one is what kind of work are you likely to do? Yeah. What kind of work are you likely to, likely to do? The most common things are delivering Uber Eats, working at the convenience store and things like that, which is perfectly normal and respectable. Yeah. And uh, you can actually get quite a bit of money from it. Like uh, minimum wage in Japan in Tokyo as uh, right now has crossed 1000 yen. So the thing is that, you know, it does pile up. Like if even if you work, even let's say 10 hours a week, right? Like, well, well, I guess it's not that much, but the thing is that when you're studying and like, you know, that, that, that amount is really quite a lot, right? Like, so that's one thing. However, one point that I want to, I want to state here is that what's increasingly become a trend is for foreign students to get paid internships and basically work, work in these internships pretty much like a part-timer. Uh, so it's pretty much go to a startup, um, like, you know, get like, you know, a thousand yen or a thousand ten, a thousand hundred yen, like, you know, an hour. And you just go there and you do their intern work. Uh, sometimes it's sexy, sometimes it's very not sexy. But the thing is that, yeah, but this is one way that people not just get some, you know, pocket money, but it's also a way of them understanding how the working world works. As, which is very important because unfortunately, education in Japan often really doesn't have that real, that real world element. Right now, the proportion of universities in Japan which actually give credits for internships, for example, it's far in the minority and things like that. And I will also say that the easy, many foreign students, when they are looking for the jobs, the biggest thing that they, one of the biggest worries is, can I fit into Japanese working society? We all understand, we all understand this, like, you know, these, this kind of, uh, what do you call it? Like uh, this, the, these kind of worries, like in, intimately, because we were all there. But my response to that is the easiest way for you to find out whether you fit into Japanese society, working society, is for you to experience it. So therefore, when you're a student, like, you know, go, do, go to part-time work, internet startups, whatever, 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 so that you yourself can understand what, like how you can be placed and how you can contribute into Japanese society is what I'd say. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, definitely it does. Yeah. And you brought up the issue of internships in Japan. And I just want to bring up something that kind of makes its rounds every once in a while on the internet, which is the concept of people paying to have internships in mm. Japan. If that's something that you're familiar with, would you mind breaking that down a little bit for my listeners? Oh, there's so much a breakdown about the word internships in Japan. So the thing is that like when you're looking at a company, like when you're looking for paying to have an internship in Japan, this means something a bit different. For some, this, uh, this refers to uh, programs where, where 
a company takes care of like you know finding a workplace for you and then like you know your your lodge and whatsoever and like you know for a certain period of time in Japan this is pretty much what happens when you are trying to look for an internship in Japan from overseas yeah now this is not something that I'm that familiar with but I know it exists now if you're in Japan already I have never heard of somebody paying to participate in an internship from within Japan I have never heard of it in Japan, there, there are some, for example, university summer programs which have an internship element. Uh, that, that's, the, that's a bit different, yeah? But in Japan, like internships are, are, I've never heard of people paying for them. If it's the long-term internship that I'm talking about, that I've talked about just now, it functions pretty much like a part-time job. But one unique thing about Japan is there are so-called one-day, two-day, three-day, five-day internships. A uh, very mysterious concept for many of us. But basically, it's pretty much a company PR branding exercise and a job exposure kind of like, you know, safari where you go in and like, you know, in a, in a weekend, you go look around how like, you know, this, 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 this concrete jungle works. And that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Even then you don't pay, but selection can be kind, kind of difficult depending on the company that you're aiming for. So, yeah. So how do those one to five day internships even work in Japan? How much can you actually learn going into have a quote unquote internship for just a few days? It's quite theoretical. I mean, so we need to understand why this happens in the first place. Why do companies actually do these internships in the first place? To make a long story short, it's because they cannot, due to their need to respect a certain recruitment calendar, they cannot do early recruitment. But they are trying to do PR towards candidates at an early stage so that they lock in their impressions, you know, in the summer of their third year, their undergraduate year, usually it's then. So companies give you this internship for you to actually come in and then get like, you know, all the smiley faces, like, you know, look at this. We're such a, we're such a, like, you know, friendly company, like a friendly company and we have global operations and you can talk to us and then we'll treat you with like, you know, we give you snacks, we give you food, we give you a nomikai at the end of things. It's pretty much a branding exercise. So that's a company's point of view, right? They want to have, they want to retain some candidates who will apply for them later on. Now from the student's point of view, like, and what's the point of actually going for these? Uh, there's a few things. Number one, no, ex like some exposure is always better than no exposure. The fact that you, for example, if you yourself have no idea how finance works, going into SNBC or MUFJ for like two days will probably give you some vocabulary at least, or some understanding of how, at least theoretically, how things work. Not practical understanding though, theoretical understanding. This can be a differential factor when you look, when you apply, for a, a job in a linked industry later on when you're really getting your, like, you know, going to your job and like in, uh, when you're actually really applying for your jobs, interviews, right? You using the correct terminology or saying that, oh, I learned this in a different, like, you know, internship can be a differential point when you go, when, especially during the interview phase. There's also another point. The fact that, for example, there are some internships in Japan which are very difficult to get, even though they're one day or two days. The fact that you have passed this is a signal for recruiters later on. When you write in your resume that you've participated in so-and-so internship, uh, even though it's five days or two days, that is an indicator that you have that this that the other company has judged you to be superior than all the other like uh, candidates. And so there's a signaling element in your resume that actually where people benefit from participating. I hadn't been aware of that benefit. So thank you for highlighting that. But just on a practical level, are these internships something that students tend to go out and pursue on their own? Do universities tend to act as 
intermediaries between the two parties? How does it usually work just on a logistical level? On logistical level, the students tend to find these themselves, uh, Japanese students. Foreign students often don't have access to these internships in the first place, first place due to the language that's, uh, that's needed. So because of this, certain universities and certain blocks of universities, like groups of universities, may actually have foreign students oriented like a programs which are meant to be kind of similar. Uh, but there are still far and few. I know that Tohoku, like Tohoku University and like a, there's a general consortium of universities in the Tohoku area, which are doing, trying to do something like this. Just shifting gears a little bit to work culture in Japan specifically. So Japan definitely doesn't have a monopoly on the idea of overworking and burnout or anything related to that. But the fact that they literally have a word for it, karoshi, so dying from overwork, can definitely give people some pause when they're considering working in Japan. So do you have any arguments about why working in Japan might be worth it for people, or at least worth thinking about seriously when they are nervous mm. about some of these aspects of Japanese workplace culture? I think that the first thing I have to say that I am definitely biased because it has worked for me. Yeah, you know, so and I think many of people on your podcast will definitely have the bias because it's worked for all of us, you know what I mean? Like the, the working in Japan. But okay, Karoshi, and we all have this image of Japan being a very hierarchical uh, structure and like in a hierarchical work, work structure, sexist, having a very sexist work, uh, work culture as well, which all of this is true. There is no smoke without a fire. And my view is, however, that for both people outside of Japan and inside Japan, we need to realize that there are multiple Japans. There is no one Japan. There is uh, the old Japan of the 1970s. There is also the new Japan of, 19, of the 2020, 2020, like uh, 2020s, yes. And that's, and you kind of can choose where you're working at. Like, you know, you can kind of choose which part of Japan do you want to associate with and, when, and which one you want to work with. The fact that I, as a foreigner, can do multiple jobs and basically, and basically like, you know, what they call it, hustle in Japan is because I choose to be inside the more startup world within Japan. And that has worked for me. So I'm not gonna deny that there's a karoshi issue. It's just more like, you know, you don't necessarily have to get into that side of Japan when you're looking for a job in Japan. Now we can talk about how do you tell them, but that's a whole other story. So yeah, for me, I just wanna say that there is no smoke without fire. So you kind of have to go in with your eyes open. But there are more choices than the monolithic Japan that people think about. That's a great way to frame it. You get to choose which Japan you participate in. You might accidentally end up in a situation that doesn't work so well for you, but luckily nowadays moving around has become more acceptable as well. So you mentioned that you've kind of moved into more of the startup world in Japan. Could you share a little bit about some of your experiences there? Ah, the startup world in Japan. Now, I'm sure that there are more speakers around who can who can talk about the startup world, like in like Tokyo startup versus like Silicon Valley and stuff like that. That's not really my 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 main like focus, but Startup world in Japan is much more dynamic. It's much more dynamic as a single, as an individual worker, because the thing is that like uh, people doing multiple jobs, having a site, like, you know, site hustle, this is quite common. Also the fact, also is the fact that the startup world in Japan is more foreign friendly, not just 
for engineers, many of these startups are also looking towards international expansion. Or even if you are not a technical person, people need like, you know, bilinguals, for example, to bridge the gap with foreign engineers and things like that. So, which is why actually there are lots of foreigners who actually gravitate towards a startup, like uh, the startup sphere, even if that's not their first job, it, it, many people will end up in it for the second and the third. So I, I like it. Um, it keeps me not just like hustling and busy, but also one thing I'd say, because of how the startup world is linked to, is more linked than other uh, sectors to the outside world, outside of Japan, right? You know, in Japan, sometimes you deal with outdated stuff. By certain, like, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? So the thing is that you get that much less here in the startup world because you, you kind of, the whole ecosystem is kind of forced to be like current. Even though there is a time lag due to translation and stuff like that, but the thing is that at least I don't feel like I'm getting outdated by being in the startup the startup scene. If I was in other sectors, no names, no names to be named. But the thing is, I would probably feel that and, and feel like you know that my own career is in danger. Right, you're less likely to get caught up wrestling a fax machine if you're working in a startup. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> That's great to know. Again, Japan and working in Japan is not a monolith. So mm. do you have any personal examples of a communication breakdown that you've experienced in Japan that you think is more due to differences in culture than anything else? There have been breakdowns so far that in my work, I mean, maybe it's because I just forget about them and uh, <laughs> I block them out of your mind. <laughs> yeah, it may really be that. I mean, I can't exactly remember. Um, more of small friction than breakdowns and this like the kind of small friction you're looking at is japan being a high context culture right sometimes you are second guessing the other person and you are not sure whether your second guess is correct or whether, whether they're trying to hint at something at you or whether they're not trying to hint something at you you know that kind of stuff you know like that happens all the time and then sometimes you have to like put in your dealers to actually have to, to, to try to ask somebody else who's in the know to ask whether they actually are okay with it and, and stuff like that. I, I, I will have to say though, I mean, one reason why I guess I, I don't really, I can't really think of like, you know, a, a big, like a, a big issue where like, like uh, the asterisk, 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 asterisk has hit the fan uh, is maybe it's because like, you know, I'm, I'm in the startup scene. You know, things, things work much more chop chop like this because we don't have that much time to play around. Yeah, I can't really think of anything like, you know, in terms of like a big breakdown in terms of like the communications. There have been frustrations though, because of slow replies, for example. There is that, as I mentioned before, there's a friction where you don't really know whether the other person actually means something else rather than what they say. So far, it hasn't really like, you know, like crashed and burned that badly for me though. Okay, that's good to hear. But yeah, not being able to know for sure what the other person actually means and not wondering if you're just reading too much into that. I can see how that would be exhausting at times to say the least. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Because you don't want to be totally KY, but you also don't want to assume things that aren't even there. <laughs> I think, you see, that's one of the traps, like, you know, that for foreigners working in Japan, sometimes you're like, it's, it's really this, like, you know, is it you or is it me? issue and nobody's going to give you an answer but sooner or later you start you start to see which of your fears are ghosts which of them are not ghosts or even if they're ghosts right you just especially when you're doing business sometimes you just don't have the time for this you just shoot and if the person like you know reacts badly then you know there's other clients around so we we, we i think in the end it ends up being like a a question of choosing your battles 
the, we don't really have the time to deeply ponder over every colleague, like, you know, interaction that we have every day. We don't. But if it's something that really regards, for example, a big deal or something, and then we have to put more time and put more feelers here and there, out there, yeah. Mm, definitely. I noticed this just for Americans going to Japan, but it seems like on average, people who go to Japan tend to be a little bit more perfectionistic and they can try to apply that to quote unquote, trying to master Japanese culture, but going into it with more of a mindset of just figuring things out as you go is probably a healthier way of approaching moving into Japan. Oh, wow. Like the integration thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you see, this kind of goes back to my first point about like finding your own value in Japan, right? Like um, integration is good. Integration is fine. Integration is important. You cannot form a proper response to what you do not understand. That is the base of all intercultural communication because you may be thinking of something, but the other person doesn't perceive it that way, right? But, um, but it just because once you get to that comprehension stage, right? It doesn't mean that you have to give a Japanese answer. I am firmly of the view that foreigners best contribute to Japan and best develop their own careers when they understand Japanese culture well, but also formulate their own responses to that based on their backgrounds and what they can deliver. So being perfectionist in a very Japanese way, for me, is kind of taking away your own benefits and what you can contribute to Japan. I'm more like be a foreigner in Japan and contribute, you know, contribute like, you know, uh, to Japan. Well, I mean, with the population, I can't say that, well, Japan does need more Japanese, but like, you know, we, Japan also needs foreigners who are foreigners, right? Exactly. Instead of trying to become someone you're not, try to lean into what you uniquely bring to the table. So if you were speaking with somebody who was thinking about going to Japan for business specifically, and you really only had time to tell them one thing about the country or its culture ahead of time, or one thing that they should prepare ahead of time, what would that be in your opinion? I'm not sure where this will contradict what I've said before. My view is however, that Japan isn't that mysterious in the end. People like to think of Japan as this, oh, there's sumo, there's samurai, and there's geisha walking in the streets and stuff like that, you know. There's that exotic Japan that Japan itself benefits from, from tourism, right? But when you're looking at, when you look at things deeply, right, there are, humans are human. There are parallels in, of Japanese culture in cultures throughout the whole world. When we talk about kukiyomu, for example, like reading the air and reading the context, that is pretty much the same thing as what we call in English, taking a hint. And there are people who don't take hints. And that's what they, and the Japanese just call them like, you know, like, and um, just call them KY. It's not that different. So it's just the same thing taken to a, yes, a deeper extent. But actually when you look at your own culture, you, you will see many things which have echoes of like, you know, like Japanese culture as well. And so for me, don't take it like Japan is this, like uh, this, amorphous blob, this alien culture that is in like indecipherable to people. No, humans are humans. Use that, use the commonalities to understand Japan. And that actually is a, is a much more humanizing way to treat Japan rather than this like huge, this, this strange, like uh, this strange blob. 
but also an easier way for you to actually understand what people are thinking because there's because humans are humans people the same thing applies japanese and many people in the world do not like uncertainty that can and, and that that is stronger in japan but it's everywhere else in the world so from there you can extrapolate how the japanese would work is what i'd say right definitely be aware of the cultural differences but they don't define individuals they don't not everything that happens is cultural or has some mysterious cultural I mean, deeper cultural meaning but i mean for me I, I would say that you know there are things which are really cultural it's just that when we look at the whole world cultures are based on the same emotions in the end right so the thing is that use your own humanity to kind of understand in japanese like is it fear of the unknown we all have that is it fear of um, is it like you know an in an, a um risk aversion many cultures have that you know like and and so take that understanding and apply it on japanese and 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 that will probably make like this myth like you know what, what do you call it like remove like the japanese myth is what i'd say that it's like you know this unknown like you know thing there um the, this unknown thing with harajuku girls dancing around that that, that that that's the trumped up version of japan the tourist the touristy vision of japan but that really isn't it definitely people some people also love to talk about how Japan is just full of contradictions and nothing makes sense and I can't even believe, I can't even understand what's going on of course completely ignoring all of the contradictions in their own culture and their own way of thinking so people are just people in the end yes people people great well I've had a lot of fun with this conversation but I just wanted to make sure that we were able to cover everything that you wanted to discuss is there anything that we missed or you would like to go a little bit deeper on nothing really i mean if people want to hear like read more of my ramblings and writings like you know there's my blog and uh <laughs> yeah not not really anything else so i mean is there mm, yeah, i can't think of anything off, off, the, off the top of my head all right well perfect so be sure to check out all of that information in the description of the episode and thank you so much for your time today not at all glad to be on I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation and please be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode to learn more about Austin Zhang and all of his work in Japan and also don't forget to check out his blog. If you're curious about the MEXT scholarship specifically, I also linked to a website, Transcends Japan, that was a lifesaver for me when I was researching the program. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using, and also leave a rating and review if you enjoyed the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast financially, please check out the link to my new coffee page to keep me well caffeinated and making content. As always, feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, be sure to reach out if you would like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. I'd also love to hear from you directly, so if you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find the link to do that in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time! また今度。